So it's a combination, I think, of both the genetic and the epigenetic changes, which is a key feature of cancer. How they're related, I think, more and more from the whole genome sequencing studies in cancer, so many of the genetic mutations found in cancer now are being ascribed to epigenetic genes. Oh, really? Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Hi, and thanks for joining me for episode 49 of the Genomics Podcast. According to current estimates, your genome contains about 20 to 25,000 unique genes. But how does your body know which genes to turn on and which genes to turn off? And when? Well, that is the role of the epigenome. As defined by the National Human Genome Research Institute, the epigenome is a multitude of chemical compounds that can tell the genome what to do. And this regulation of gene expression, also called epigenetics, turns out to be critical for human development and for human diseases like cancer. Over the last several years, scientists have turned to next-generation sequencing, or NGS, to better understand the epigenome. To discuss the epigenome and cancer, I'm joined by Professor Susan Clark. Susan is Research Director of Genomics at the Garvin Institute of Medical Research in Sydney, Australia. She's a world-renowned scientific expert in applying genomics to studying DNA methylation and to understanding the role of epigenetics in human biology and cancer. Sue Clark, I want to really welcome you to the Genomics Podcast today. And our show today is about epigenetics and the use of genomics and epigenomic analysis to try to get a better understanding of cancer biology. You've been in this field for a number of years. Can you share with our listeners some of the history of how the study of epigenetics started and how that study has evolved over these past several years? Well, I suppose the field of epigenetics started many, many years ago with the development and the cell biology field in trying to understand how we all start out with the same genetic DNA complement and yet during cell differentiation, you can get cell type specificity. So how does a heart cell become a heart cell, a skin right. cell become a skin cell when they have the same DNA? And so the the term epigenetics was coined as something that we don't understand, information above the DNA that must be controlling gene regulation to allow cell differentiation. And it was probably back in 1975 when two seminal hypotheses papers came out from Art Riggs and Robin Holliday proposing that DNA methylation in particular might play a role in gene regulation. From my point of view anyway, those two papers set the scene for researchers like myself to start looking to see whether that actually was possible. And what was the first technology that sort of allowed you to look specifically at this? For DNA methylation per se, the technology was based on restriction enzymes. 
and southern blot analysis. Wow, okay. So it was clear from the bacterial field that restriction enzymes could cut DNA if they were not modified at a particular base, but if they were, they couldn't cut it. And so using that technology in the 70s was how people assessed whether their favourite site was methylated or not. When did sequencing approaches start to become a part of the mix in terms of the technology that you were using? So for methylation sequencing, that didn't occur till the early 1990s. Okay. And it was based on the Maxim Gilbert sequencing technology. And so as you probably appreciate, when you sequence DNA, you you can't look at the DNA modifications. They're lost in the sequencing process. So myself and Marianne Frommer back in the early 90s were very interested in trying to develop a sequencing technology that you wouldn't lose those modification marks when you did the DNA sequencing. So we, like everybody else, were using restriction enzymes, but frustrated by the fact that you could only look at such a small fraction of the DNA to see whether it was modified or not. Right. So I think many technologies came together that allowed us and many other people to think about this concept of combining a chemical modification, and that had been reported in the literature at least 10 years beforehand by sulfite modification. But applying that to DNA for sequencing was a whole new concept. And so initially that's what we tried to do that and then use southern blots to identify methylated DNA because that was before PCR (laughs) had come along. And clearly doing that way was really not very informative. It was really with combining PCR after bisulfite treatment that allowed the amplification of molecules that you could then determine whether they were methylated or not, at least the individual CPG sites. It's a very quick way to just hone in on those interesting sites. And the other thing, it's positive. So what you're detecting is a positive mark rather than the loss of a mark. How does bisulfite sequencing compare to some of the techniques that have been recently developed, like ATAC-seq, for example? With bisulfite sequencing, you get single molecule sensitivity. You're looking at every cytosine, every CPG site, and in mammalian cells, that's 28,000 of these sites, and at a single molecule base pair resolution. With something like a TAC-seq, what you're looking for there are regions that are open for the transposase to come and mark. So these are broadly transcriptionally active uh, regions. Open regions. They are, clearly if they're transcriptionally active, they're open, but they also mark regions that might be associated with transcription factor binding sites with enhancer regions. Right. So they give you a very different picture. I think the methylome, we're still understanding a little bit about the landscape and the architecture of what the methylome really tells us. Right. Where you have unmethylated regions, that's also an indication of active open regions. So CPG islands, which are commonly associated with promoters, are normally unmethylated. Mm-hmm. And 
they are associated with active gene expression, but they can also be associated with genes that are silent, but are able to be switched on at a later time. There's also regions that we still don't know very much about. There's very large unmethylated regions called UMRs. There's other larger regions called LMRs, <laughs> lowly methylated regions. People have lots of different names for these things. Um, I think we're still at this point of generating methylomes, mm-hmm. and now there's more and more with consortiums like the International Human Epigenome Consortium. And so by creating methylomes in different cell types, which was the aim of the IHEC consortium, will allow us, by combining all of these, to get a better understanding of how the methylome pattern can inform us about regulatory regions. We know they can tell us exquisitely the cell type. It's an incredibly good signature for being able to predict cell of origin. Oh, wow. Potentially the age of the cell. So there's a lot of information, I think, in the methylome that we still need to understand and mine. I'd like to talk a little bit about one particular application for understanding epigenetics. Can you explain how epigenetics and how regulation of gene expression goes haywire in cancer? So I always start my talk saying cancer is a disease of the genome and the epigenome. Okay. Because there's clearly mistakes in the genes. Right. We know that there's genetic mutations that can drive cancer in tumor suppressor genes, there's amplifications, there's deletions. But in addition to those genetic changes, we know that there's gross changes in the epigenome. So there's hypomethylation, loss of methylation genome-wide in all cancers that have been studied, as well as hypermethylation, which is a gain of methylation in regions such as these promoter CPG islands, and that's associated with switching off or inactivation of tumor suppressor genes, but also inactivation of multiple genes that might have bystander effects. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a combination, I think, of both the genetic and the epigenetic changes, which is a key feature of cancer. How they're related, I think, more and more from the whole genome sequencing studies in cancer, so many of the genetic mutations found in cancer now are being ascribed to epigenetic genes. Oh, really? And so I think the story is now coming full circle (laughs) (laughs) that to get these changes to the epigenome, how do they occur? Right. And clearly many of them are occurring because you have mistakes in not just DNA methyltransferases, but in many of the histone modification marks, um, many of the readers and the writers of the epigenome. And I think it's that combination which really is quite uh, intricately related, which can result in changes in gene regulation. And clearly each patient has a different pattern that will give rise to a convergence of tumour cell clonal growth. I'd like to talk to you just for a few moments about a paper that you recently published. I think it's a fascinating example of applying epigenetics to cancer. So you published this very recently in Genome Research, and your article was titled Enduring Epigenetic Landmarks to Find the Cancer Microenvironment. I found this article really interesting. 
partly because it deals with this concept of the tumor microenvironment and how there's a lot of heterogeneity among the different cell types that are within that cancer. Can you talk a little bit about that research for that specific paper? I mean, what research questions were you hoping to address with that work? So principally in the cancer field, most studies concentrated on the cancer epithelial cells. And as I said previously, we know that there's major changes in the epigenome to the cancer epithelial cells. But we were interested to see if there was also epigenetic changes to the microenvironment. And in particular, one of the major components of the microenvironment in prostate cancer anyway, and in prostate, is the stroma, and it's the fibroblasts. And in prostate cancer, as with many cancer, the fibroblasts also take on a different phenotype in cancer, and that's called cancer-associated fibroblasts. Okay. And with our collaborators from Monash University, they developed a system that they could molecularly classify a cancer-associated fibroblast to show that they had enduring changes to the phenotype. Mm-hmm. If they co-cultured the cancer-associated fibroblasts, they could convert normal benign prostate cells into prostate cancer-like cells. So there was a change in cancer-associated fibroblasts that was associated with promoting a tumorigenesis. We asked the question, are those changes associated with an epigenetic change and therefore locking them into that state? So to do that, we basically isolated the cancer-associated fibroblasts, classified that they were indeed tumorigenic, and then did our methylome analysis, and in particular looked at their methylation profile and their gene expression profile. Mm -hmm. And we did find certainly changes to the methylome that were quite, in many ways, quite different to the, the prostate cancer epigenome. There was not the significant amount of genome-wide hypermethylation. But what we did find was that there were regions that were commonly methylated. So in some genes, they had what we think is a convergent methylation pattern between Mm -hmm. the cancer epithelial and the cancer-associated fibroblasts. So that was the first, I think, surprising finding. The second one was the landscape of the cancer-associated fibroblasts, the methylation landscape, was really quite different. Rather than having, as I said, genome-wide hypomethylation, we found the major change was in these, what I talked about before, UMRs, the unmethylated regions, and the LMRs, the lowly methylated regions, changed in size. So they became either larger or smaller which was really an intriguing finding. And we still don't really understand what that means, but it was a classic signature that we found in these particular cells, either suggesting a pathology or potentially suggesting that they have been derived from a particular stem cell niche. These are things we still don't know about. And in that paper also you were applying RNA sequencing or RNA-seq. So the combination of looking at genes that are actually expressed with the methylome, what's the value in combining those two approaches? What, what do you get out of that? I suppose for all of these studies we're looking at 
a particular landscape, a pattern, but we want to see whether that pattern is associated with any change in gene regulation. And even though it's quite difficult, it's still association studies, it gives us a clue as to what particular pathways are deregulated. It gives us a clue as to where the regulatory regions might be. So as I talked about the LMRs and UMRs, we know they're regulatory regions. We can start looking at what genes are dysregulated that are close to those regions. It gives us some functional insight that we can then follow up with more functional studies. I'm really interested in this pattern of methylation that you said you was different in these fibroblasts. So can one look at epigenetics as a biomarker for cancer? I mean, are there any approaches trying to leverage epigenetics as a, a diagnostic for cancer? Yes, that's been going on now for nearly two, uh, two decades, <laughs> <laughs> using methylation in particular as a biomarker for cancer. So the first clear example of that is in prostate cancer. We and many others described methylation of GST pi which is methylated in more than 90% of prostate cancers. And both alleles can be methylated. Wow. So it is really a very sensitive diagnosis for prostate cancer, and it's being used clinically to diagnose prostate cancer. There's also a number of companies who are selling a suite of biomarkers based on methylation for colorectal cancer, lung cancer, breast cancer. So, look, it certainly is being used more and more widely in the diagnosis. I think the holy grail of biomarkers, though, is to get biomarkers for prognosis right. of the yeah. disease or prediction to outcome. So I think the methylation, the early hits have been about detecting it early, mm -hmm. but not necessarily about prognosis. And there's a lot of effort going into that, obviously, everywhere <laughs> from our group as well as internationally. Related to the diagnostic application, are there any efforts to develop pharmaceutical treatments that can modify the, the epigenome or the epigenetics of cancer specifically to treat cancer? So probably, as you know, it's a hot field, the yeah. epigenetic therapy, and that's been also going on for more than two decades <laughs> with the early use of the DNA methylation inhibitor, 5-azocytosine, the derivatives of that. There's obviously active pharmaceutical energy going into that, as well as the histone D-acetylases, HDAC inhibitors, and yes, there's many trials and they're expanding the Stand Up to Cancer Epigenetic Dream Team, which is based in America and we're part of that as well, is intensively looking and expanding the number of cancers that they're doing small trials on and the effects have been really very positive, surprisingly positive, not necessarily in the way that we might have expected, the epigenetic therapy, both the DNA demethylases and the HDAC inhibitors, at low doses appear to be turning on, at least in some cases, turning on neoantigens and then promoting an immune response. So they might have some additional benefit in addition to the anti-cancer effect that might be. So I think this is now a very hot area is whether they're actually acting as immune stimulators. What are some of the challenges that you face? You know, the big challenges, the bottlenecks that are 
inhibiting progress and how are you trying to overcome some of these challenges? Well, I suppose there's two big challenges. One is the cost. You you can do one DNA sequence and that gives you a genetic answer. But to look at the epigenome, you ideally need to have a methylome, ChIP-seq for histone modifications, RNA-seq for gene expression, a TAC-seq if you're wanting to look quickly at regulatory regions, HiC-seq if you're wanting to look at chromatin <laughs> capture, Repli-seq if you're going to look at replication timing, and the list goes on. The technology right. is obviously increasing as we speak every day. So to do a thorough epigenome is a very costly effort. Every time a DNA, I mean cancer in particular, I'm very much promoting trying to do the at least the methylome and the genome sequencing and the RNA sequencing together. all at one time together. And we have developed technologies that you can do that. So that's the first thing is cost. The second is the bioinformatic challenges. So it's a lot of data to be integrating. And in particular, the bioinformatic algorithms for calling differential methylation are still not as sophisticated as we need them to be. We talked about for the past couple of decades, there have been diagnostic approaches, there have been efforts to develop treatment, but where do you see the field moving and where do you see genomics fitting into that picture? What's exciting for you about the future? I suppose what's exciting for me is more of a personalized genomics approach for these epigenetic diseases. So at the moment, at least at the Garvin Institute, we have a process where people with rare cancers, rare disorders come in and get their genome sequenced to help for, let's say, immunological disorders or cancers. And if there's an actionable mutation with a drug that's already out there, then they can go on and have that therapy. But there is little concentration of if those genetic mutations are occurring in these epigenetic drivers. And that's where I think the next five or ten years we'll now be able to identify those patients where that was forgotten if they had these sort of strange mutations in genes we didn't know the function of. Wow. So I think being able to combine the epigenetic landscape with the genomic mutations will then allow more patients to have directed therapy. So this is where potentially the epigenetic therapy could be of benefit for patients that we never would have thought about to have gone on those therapies. So I think the combination to allow more precise, individualized treatment will be, from my point of view, a very exciting space to watch for in the next five years. That's wonderful. That's a very hopeful vision for the future. I want to thank you for sitting down with us and enlightening us about epigenetics and how it plays a role in cancer. Thanks for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Thanks, Paul. So, as Susan said, cancer is a disease of the genome and the epigenome. Scientists can now use a combination of NGS techniques to characterize genes, gene expression, and gene regulation across the entire genome. This multiomic approach is really poised to transform our understanding of cancer biology and cancer treatment. If you're interested in learning more about the Stand Up to Cancer Dream Team and their groundbreaking cancer research, visit their website at standuptocancer.org. 
And if you don't want to miss our next show, just subscribe to the Genomics Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Zoe Milgram, Chief Clinical Officer at Eugene Labs. We'll be discussing genetic carrier screening right here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Genomics Podcast.